Hello and welcome to Five Alive. It's another beautiful day in Mahali Chandigarh, and today we are going to continue what we were talking about last week, which is found in the book of John, chapter 9. And it is when Jesus heals a blind man. Uh, we got to the part where he healed the blind man last week. It was just in the first seven verses of this ninth chapter of John. And yet the story continues on through the rest of this chapter. And we're going to just pick up on some of the things that were going on after the healing took place. And so if we'll open our Bibles to John chapter nine, we're going to start in verse seven. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and he said to him go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent so he went and washed and came back seen the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying is this not the man who used to sit and beg some said it is he others said no but it, he looks like him he kept saying I am the man so they said to him then how are your eyes opened he answered the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But... How he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he is to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. Wonderful. Uh, there's four different points that I'd like to talk about here uh, that are really relevant to what we've seen within this passage of scripture. First of all, I noticed that there is a disbelief of the miracle right from the beginning. There's a blind man. Jesus spits on the ground. He creates mud with his saliva, puts it on the man's eyes. The man goes and washes in the pool of Siloam. He comes back, he can see, and immediately people are denying uh, that there was a miracle that took place. And so how do we in today's society or in today's world, 2,000 plus years later, expect people to react when we say that we serve a God who is a miraculous working God? Their immediate reaction of disbelief can't be something that catches us off guard. When Jesus was walking on the earth, an immediate reaction was to a miracle, disbelief. So this is a common thing, a common occurrence that has happened over and over and over again. And so I just want to look through that in the eyes of today's modern age, if we will. I've been um, not fortunate, but I have been injured several times in my lifetime. And as a result of those injuries, sometimes I have been able to heal more rapidly than others. And as a result, there has been a denial, and this isn't a miraculous thing. This is just straight out 
life every day, you get injured. Like, for instance, exactly what happened just last Saturday is I was out in public. I was talking with a doctor who works um, with genetics. And I was talking about the fact that two years ago, I had met with an accident where I had shattered uh, uh, my collarbone, a few ribs, and damaged my shoulder, needed full reconstructive surgery on it. And he didn't believe me. He said, no, your arm is moving too well. The shoulder is a very difficult thing to have a procedure on. There's no way you have done anything to your shoulder. And I opened my shirt up and revealed to him this massive scar that comes from the top of my uh, my back all the way down to my rib cage. And he looked at it and he goes, huh, well, I wouldn't believe it if you wouldn't have shown me your scar. And that's the way a medical professional in science reacts to something that is not miraculous. That is just, I have full range of motion in my arm. So why is it so hard for us? Or why do we get so squeamish when people deny the miraculous that's that we see happening in our lives? Or when we proclaim Jesus as Master, Savior, and Lord, why do we get so hurt or offended when somebody denies the miracle right at the beginning? I think a part of it is uh, what we see here specifically is these are the things that happen. People deny the miracle of what's happening to a person because they, um, they're afraid or because they don't exactly understand what's going on and because their comprehension can't contain or fathom what has happened, the miraculous that has occurred, their immediate reaction is, well, then that's not true. There's no way that happened. I talked last week about a heart attack that I had and how we had somebody walk up to us a couple of weeks later and proclaim the glory of God in Amritsar because they had seen me in the hospital. They had heard the doctor talking with my wife and they knew the miracle that actually took place. And yet I know other Christian believers that also know me. And because it happened so fast, they automatically denied there's no way that you had a heart attack. I don't believe that really happened. And instead of automatically thinking somebody's a liar, instead of actually recognizing a miracle has taken place. And so I see two things that are happening here. They denied the miracle um, of the person by saying, no, there's no way this is the guy that we've seen begging. It must be somebody else. He just looks alike. They just have similarities to each other. And the second thing that I see them doing is that they immediately, um, once they can't find Jesus, they take the man to the Pharisees because they need some kind of expert opinion on what's going on here. And so I have a, a question to what lengths, and this is kind of a, a reflective question, one that we can ask ourselves, and, and that is, to what lengths will I go to to deny Christ an opportunity to work in my life? How far am I willing to go to say, no, there's no way that that was Jesus. There's no way God would perform a miracle in my life. Do I question, do I doubt Christ's love for me because of my past and or circum current circumstances? Do I disbelieve evidence because he has allowed a miracle near to me and miracles are just not scientifically possible? So therefore, there's no way this was a miraculous uh, event that took place. There must be some better explanation. Or do I turn from the truth of Christ because that truth means I need to change who I am because I'm a person full of sin? Well, why do we have these reactions 
when, uh, when we're presented with holiness, with righteousness, with somebody with upstanding character, why is our immediate reaction to reject them as fake, phony, or false? Why is it our immediate reaction to deny a miracle instead of accepting that God would love us so much that he would heal us? Any thoughts? I mean, part of it would have to go back to whenever we were reading that. I can't remember which chapter we were in. It was probably this last chapter, chapter 8 of John. Whenever Jesus even said, you're not of this, you're not sons of the of God or of Abraham, but you're sons of the devil. And to go with that, I mean, the devil does not, he hates Christ and God and spiritual that spiritual side of things. He likes to be in the darkness and all this other stuff. So whenever something good happens to someone else through God, a miracle has happened, he immediately wants you to believe that it's not true. Okay. Is it wrong to doubt? No. no. Well, but so many people tell me, you can't doubt. That's wrong. I can't believe you doubt God. How could you dare doubt God? Well, there's a difference. There are two different types of doubt. I mean, there's the good doubt and then there's a the bad doubt. And the good doubt is whenever you go into a state of questioning but then you come out of it realizing the goodness of God and other stuff like that. And then there's the point of doubt where you get so into doubt and then you start doubting more and then you start doubting even more. And then you don't listen to people or God trying to lead you towards the truth and you start rejecting them. And then you start looking into other things other than God because you're in such doubt, quote unquote, that you can't look to God because how could he still do this to me? How could he still love me or why would a good God do this to my family or in my life? And instead of looking through the scriptures and asking God for answers, they just turn away and trying to find another solution instead of asking the person who they blame for this incident or problem. So doubt can lead to faith and doubt can lead to disbelief. And I am the one that chooses which one it is. Yes. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? I'd say it's easier to disbelieve because man or woman wants to be in control yeah. of their own life. So mm. it's easier just to disbelieve because, well, if I didn't do it and if I didn't put forth the effort to do it and or to make it happen, then it didn't happen. Because I want to be in control and mm. I want to be the one that sees the miracle happen. So if someone else performs a miracle on someone else, it didn't really happen. And another aspect, I think, is we try too quickly to what's rationalize things. Sure. Where in if you see something that's miraculously happened or something like that, instead of people believing the true miracle that has happened in front of their eyes, they immediately want to try and make it sound like it doesn't exist because they're scared of the unknown. All humans are scared of the unknown. That's why a lot of people are afraid of the ocean and other things because they don't know what's there. Right. And that's the same with the spiritual realm is they don't know anything about it. So instead of trying to learn about it, they immediately turn and try and rationalize things mm. and say, this blind man isn't the same guy as the blind man we know. It's the guy who just looks exactly like him. It's his doppelganger. <laughs> I mean, it's just a completely different guy. Because they're trying so hard to rationalize it because they don't understand and they can't comprehend what has happened to the point where they're trying to trick themselves into believing a lie because it's, they can't handle the truth. 
And the thing that gets me about this is that what is mentioned in the scripture here is, is that these were his neighbors. So these are people that saw him, not just every festival time or maybe once a year, but these are people that saw this man every single day. And as you're saying, they're trying to rationalize the fact that, oh, this must be somebody different because I've known this guy all of his life. And now he can see, no, that's not possible. Uh, and, and the mind is just like blown, like, whoa, how did this even happen? This is crazy. How, how much do you think jealousy pay, plays a part in disbelief? Like when it's a miracle that happens to somebody else, do you think jealousy plays a part that they wish it was, I wish that happened to me and not to him. I'm a, I'm more deserving than that person is. I definitely believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely believe that. Yeah. I was, you know, like if it was someone I was born blind for all of my life, why am I not the one that was chosen? Well, if there was someone else in the crowd that was blind all of their life and or had a deformity and or a handicap, why was that person not chosen as opposed to this man who was blind? Yeah. Why was he chosen? And there's a reason. I mean, scripture reveals why he, he was ready. His heart was softened to the ways of the Lord. I mean, there, there's a, those are all those preparation steps. Yeah. He was the one that could receive this miracle and happening to proclaim the fame of Christ Jesus, not proclaim the fame of, hey, this miracle was put on me. Ha, 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 ha. You know, kind of a haughty attitude. Haughty attitude. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, as we see even here, do all of the beggars, they kind of cluster in certain areas together, don't they? They're not like individuals like you. If you're going to see somebody asking for money at a stoplight, you're going to see four or five people asking for money. You're not going to just see one person. And, and yeah, you're right. There was probably a cluster of people that were there. And yet Jesus chose this person and nobody else. He chose to heal somebody of blindness, not somebody who was lame or somebody who had a deformity or, or was deaf or anything like that. He chose a blind man. And in our rationalization, sometimes we say, well, that's not fair. That's not just because Jesus should have healed everybody that was in that group. And yet he only chose one. That means that he's not a just and loving God. And how can I serve somebody that would only heal one person? That's what we do to rationalize, right? So that, which leads me back to my first original question, which was a self-reflective question. To what lengths will I go to to deny Jesus an opportunity to work in my life? Second thing is everybody's looking for Jesus. Immediately when the, when the neighbors recognize, okay, this is the blind man. This is the guy that we saw that was born blind. Their immediate response is to go, well, who did it? And he gives the testimony, as you just said, Blair, he gives a testimony of who Jesus is. It was the man Jesus that healed me or the one they called Jesus that healed me. And he did it by spitting in the ground, creating mud, putting on my eyes. I went and washed in the pool of Siloam and, and I'm healed. And they say, well, where is he? And the man's response is, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I find such beauty in his testimony and I find the amazing glorification of who God is with the words when he knows the one who healed him and he specifically speaks the name, it was the man called Jesus. I think that's 
amazing. I mean, he's a blind guy, so he's going by what he heard. And when he goes and washes, it's not like Jesus went with him. It's not like Jesus is there when all of a sudden he can see. It's not like he can even identify Jesus because he hasn't seen him yet. He's only heard him. He's only heard and only heard it's the one whom they call Jesus. And yet he doesn't mute himself from saying who it was that did it. And the people's response of this, where is Jesus then? And he says, I don't know. What is the next response of the people? But to go find somebody that is an expert. And so they go to the Pharisees. They go to the religious leaders because they want the next best thing to the miracle worker. And that is what people automatically assume is the religious leader. We do the same thing today. Something happens in our life. And so what we do is we go find an expert or a person of authority to give validation to the experience that we have. And yet the Pharisees were not qualified to be able to bring glory and honor to God because they looked at things differently, didn't they? They looked at Jesus as somebody who was not godly and their immediate response is, well, he healed on the Sabbath. There's no way this is from God. And the people's belief that they are holy comes from the Pharisees constantly saying, we are holy, we are righteous. They said it, they created laws to prove it, and they continued to subjugate the people of things that needed to be considered holy so that that way they maintained their power. So do you think the people are too stupid to recognize Christ as Messiah? the neighbors, this blind man, that they would even need to go find experts to help them navigate this decision to call Jesus their Messiah. Because the people felt like they were, they were scared to just make a proclamation without an authority saying that is valid. Do you think the people could be more righteous or holy than even the religious leaders? Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah. Elaborate a little bit on that if you can. Well, I believe it is a possibility. At least, I mean, the Pharisees may not have said that, but I believe it's definitely a possibility that even our leadership, the ones who put the rules in place, don't always follow their own rules. Absolutely. And there are those people that try their best to follow the rules of people in leadership and try their best to maintain everything. And whenever they do wrong, they admit they're wrong and try and keep going. And then whenever that's when the phrase, never meet your heroes and other <laughs> stuff like that, whenever you meet a person that you followed their rules all your life, and then you talk to them and they're completely different from how you imagined and they don't even follow the rule sets that they have given out. And you're like, well, then what was the point of living like that? Right. If you're completely different than what you, you didn't practice what you preached. Yeah. I mean, so yes, I believe uh, some of those neighbors of the blind man were definitely more holy than the Pharisees because they had followed the laws and others, some of them, because they had followed the laws of Abraham and Mo Moses, sure. Abraham and Moses and all of them. And they'd followed after the Ten Commandments and all that other stuff all their life. And they've tried their best to live righteously and all that other stuff. And so I believe they did that. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I, and I just have a follow-up then. What makes a person an expert in God? 
What makes them all of a sudden an expert? What makes them holy? What makes them righteous? What makes them uh, an authoritarian of who God is? Is it because of a personal experience they had? Is it because of how much they've studied? Is it because they um, live close to a religious site that they're automatically holy because they live close to the temple or a religious site? Is it because of the clothes that they wear? What makes a person holy? Is it because of their faith or their closeness to God? Is it the amount of times that they sing a specific song or read the scriptures or subjugate themselves to abject poverty and selflessness? How many times they attend a festival or an event, or maybe they're put in leadership of a festival or an event? Or is it how we treat others? I know I've given a lot of examples there, but what is it that makes a person an expert? Because some of these things are truly what makes them an expert and what makes them holy and what makes them righteous. And others are just man-made rules and laws that we then say, oh, because they live closer to the temple, they're holy. Oh, because of the place they were born at, they're holy. Oh, because of the food they eat, this person must be holy. And we look at the outside and that's not the way God looks at man or woman to determine whether they're holy or not. Because what does he look at? The heart. He looks at the heart. Absolutely. So why is it necessary for the Pharisees to believe on Jesus in order for the people to believe in Jesus? This is whenever we get into the fact there are two different types of people. There are leaders and then there are followers. And most of these people are followers and they've always followed after what the Pharisees have said because the Pharisees are their leaders. And so... In order for, so then they have to ask their leader if they're allowed to believe something else if, if, in case their leader believes it. Mm-hmm. So like, like you said, so the people of the community come to the Pharisees saying, hey, we heard all this stuff about Jesus. Do you believe it's true? And if so, if it's true, then we, are we allowed to worship Jesus? Because they're following after the Pharisees' teachings because they're followers and right. they weren't born to lead and make decisions on their own. They could eventually grow to that point where they can become a leader. But at that point in time, they were still following after what the Pharisees had said. That's perfect. My third uh, thing that I recognize here is that religious leaders can't even believe the facts. So following what you were just saying, that's why I'm just jumping right into the next point, is because here this healing happened on the Sabbath again oh my goodness how in the world can this guy always be healing people on the sabbath what is going on they then disagree about the method by which healing could even occur because there's no way a person can heal because that's work and be done on the sabbath and then others are like well what's wrong with it yeah isn't this the work of god so then the pharisees start disagreeing with each other over the methodology of whether this could even happen or not They disbelieve the man of God would work on the Sabbath. Therefore, he must be ungodly. They then disbelieve the man was even born blind in verse 18. Well, this guy must not have even been born blind. How is it possible for somebody to open the eyes of somebody who was born blind? This is, no, this didn't happen, which takes us back to our first point, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That the the disbelief has started to occur. And, and, And so now you have these religious experts who were like, well, then this guy wasn't born blind. Well, that even goes to show us that these so-called religious experts 
aren't really experts in their own field because you can't be an expert on God first and foremost, because there's so much about God that we don't even know. And because there's so much about him, our human minds can't even comprehend how much there is about God. Sure. And so even with that, it also shows the humanness of the Pharisees on how the fact that the neighbors already started doing it, the rationalization part. And then they went to the Pharisees thinking they'd automatically get an answer. But then they hear how the Pharisees are acting just how they did like an hour or two beforehand. Right. Because we're all human. Yeah. So we're not going to immediately come to the answer conclusion just immediately. They're going to ask just as many questions as the original people had. Mm -hmm. And so then it shows us that we're, they're human and they're not as holy as you would think they are because they say they're close to God and all this other stuff, but they didn't even believe the facts in that point in time. So they didn't need to be putting them up on a pedestal and worshiping these religious leaders. And yet we're guilty of doing the same thing today, aren't we? Oh, well, if this pastor didn't say this, then I can't really believe that that's the way the Bible. Well, I was reading the other day, so-and-so, and so therefore they said it was this way. And Oh, I was listening to a YouTube commentary by pastor so-and-so. And you know, he's got a lot of followers, so therefore he must be an expert. We do the same thing today. Yeah. Don't we? But then we feel guilty too. Mm. Because if a miracle takes place in our lives and we're not a part of the fellowship that we've chosen to be a part of. But this miracle occurs because we're maybe listening to someone else speak it, speak to us or, yeah. or maybe we're at someone's home and that person has prayed for us and a miracle has occurred outside of the, the head person that we follow. Yeah. You know, whether it's a pastor or whether it's uh, a teacher or a professor or whomever we look up to with great respect. So if a miracle takes place outside of, from that person, um, how could this be? Mm. You know, and so if a miracle happens, then that person who has received this miracle, they in return go, you know, like if their pastor approaches them or if a, um, an elder approaches them that have spoken life into them and say, Hey, you know, something's changed about you. Uh, what is it? In that moment, that person has the right to say, Oh, well, so and so and so and so were, were praying with me, and we were believing on this matter, and this occurred. Yeah. And then that elder or whomever it is that that person respects prayerfully would say, You know, praise the Lord. Right. This is exciting. Right. But sometimes, that person that received the miracle may be so ashamed that they sought outside help that they're like, oh, it's nothing. Mm. And they enclose and they withhold it in. They conceal it. And don't let that miracle be known. Therefore, sometimes the miracle is still there. Yeah. But it's for that person to recognize how to share it. So we can become so embarrassed of Christ. Mm. I remember being like, I had warts all over my hands mm. ever since the age of eight and, uh, well, six, seven and eight, six, seven and eight, nine and 10, 11 years old. I just had warts and it hurt so badly to, to write. And, um, I had them all embedded in my, in my, I'm right-handed. So they were all embedded on my middle finger, on my, um, index finger and on my, um, 
thumb and then all on the inside of my palm that my hands would bleed um so like after a day's work of school it would just all be crusted and oozy and goozy and you know we put ointments and things like like that couldn't afford to go to the doctor um and i asked christ jesus into my heart when i was the age of eight Mm -hmm. and one of the things that i really prayed for was um the warts to be gone yeah because it hurt so bad because it would mush and it would just um it was awful yeah uh i i took a bath one day i was 11 almost 12 years of age and I was just like, Lord, I want to be like this man that has gone and has dipped into the water. Lord, I'm dipping into my bath water right now. I'm dipping these hands and I'm giving them to you. And Lord, I believe that they will just fall off in Jesus' name. Well, you know what? As crazy as it is, I dipped three times. It was really funny because I dipped once and I was like, Lord, I have faith. And then I was like, and I dipped again. And I was like, I want to walk on water, you know, like in my bathtub. And then I dipped again. And one by one, those warts started falling off. Mm. I got so scared. I was like, mom, get in here now. And she's like, what? What happened? And I was like, my warts are falling off. And she goes, well, of course they are. Praise God. Now hurry up and take your bath and get out. You know, and I was like, I just started crying. You fast forward it. I was 19 years of age. These warts came all down my legs, down my right leg and down my left leg. And there were so many people that would say, no man is going to marry you. Look at all those warts down your legs. Look at all of them. I was so embarrassed. And I thought, how in the world did these warts come back? Mm. Like, you know, is it because of sweat? Is it because of this? Yet again, still didn't have the money to go to the doctor. You know, people were like, you can go and freeze them off. And I was like, no, you know, I believe when I was 11, 12 years of age that these warts would fall off. I have no scarring. I have no indication that you would ever think I had warts. I mean, it was horrible holding people's hands or shaking a person's hand and they'd be like, ew, ew, you know, like, ah, you know. Then with the exposingness of my legs with warts all down them, I met you at that time. Right. And I said, I have to reveal something to you. And you're like, okay, what? And I was like, I have warts all down my leg. And I pulled up my pants leg and you're like, okay. (laughs) And I said, do you still like me? And you said, yes, I, yeah, that's, that's nothing to me. And I was like, okay. Wow. And I accepted it and you still didn't, you didn't go, Ooh, that's gross. Oh, that's, you know, if my leg touched your leg, you weren't like, Oh, get your leg off of me. Like I'm going to get warts all over me. And these warts, I continued to pray over them. I remember even asking you, will you pray for me that they'll fall off? And you're like, okay, sure. Yeah. I I was 21 Hmm. and it was right before we had gotten married. Yeah. I've never had them since yeah. they're gone yeah. and they fell off. And I remember I was like, you know what? We can mark that off of our prayer list. I said, the warts are gone. And you were like, no, show me. <laughs> and I was like, and you were like, oh my goodness. So smooth. And I was like, he goes, and you said, silky smooth. You did. You said, did they fall off this time? And I said, no, they sucked back in. They just disappeared. They just disappeared. Yeah. I have no idea where they went. There was no evidence to show that they were gone. Yeah. And 
So those are some of the, you know, if I ever said that to somebody today in 2020, they'd be like, well, show me the pictures. Right, right. You know, I, I don't believe that. Yeah, proof. let I me look proof. at your hands. There's no indication of scars. Like, there's no way, you know, that that could have happened. Right. And may, I mean, yeah, that's a physical miracle. But there's so many miracles that can take place internally Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And that's what the Pharisees did, as you were just saying, people to even today, but even people back here in the story that we're talking about right here is they gathered testimony. So like you said, people today would say, give me proof, show me photos, whatever. And, and that's exactly what the Pharisees do here. And they go and they gather this blind man's parents and they say, was this guy born blind or not? Like, is this your... Is this your son? Like mom and dad are going to be like, no, that's not my son. Is this your son? Yes, that's our son. Was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. And then the... I like when they say, ask him, he's of age. Yeah, ask him, he's of age. <laughs> and, and makes it it's funny. I mean, it's such a parent like, thing to say. Like, it, why are you asking me? Of course he was blind. Go yeah, ask him. Yeah, he's really of is. age to speak. <laughs> and, and which leads me right into the next thing of what I was going to say, which is uh, the parents attend... Tempt to pass by the question of how was he healed by saying, ask him, he's of age. Which brings me right into the fourth point, which is they were afraid to be put out of the synagogue. Right. In other words, they were afraid to be rejected by their community if they were to say, Jesus healed our son and therefore now we believe in Jesus. They were afraid of the repercussions that were going to happen to them. And things haven't changed. They haven't changed much. People are still afraid of this. People are still fearful of, well, I'm, I, I, you know, I was raised a Hindu or I was raised a Muslim or I was raised Zoroastrian or I was raised Buddhist and, and Jesus wasn't a part of my life before. I don't remember my grandparents talking about him or my mom and dad. And so now you're, you're talking to me about Jesus. If I accept him, I might be rejected by my mom and dad. I might be rejected by my Community. I might be rejected by my guru dwara or my temple or by my uh, my my masjid. How 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 can somebody ask that of me? This isn't an uncommon thing, which is what makes it such an important passage of scripture for us. Is that this isn't something new? This has happened to other people before. This is a reality of the decision that most of us have to make when we do come to Christ is I have to turn from everyone and everything else and cling only to Jesus. And when people talk about salvation is free, there's a hint of untruth in that because it's not free. It's free in the respect that all I have to do is believe on Jesus, but it's not free in the respect that I have to reject everything that I've ever known. And that is a heavy cost. That is a heavy price, especially if I've grown up going to a temple or a gurudwara or a masjid. And I believed all my life that this is the right way. And then I come to the truth of Christ. And now I see he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not some rules and not some uh, uh, righteous rituals or some religious festivals. That's not what gives me to heaven. That's not what gives me acceptance into God's favor. Jesus is the way. And I now have to turn from everything I've ever known from the time I was born and follow after Jesus. That's a scary thing. 
That's costly. And that's exactly what this blind man's parents are experiencing in this moment. Mm -hmm. And the blind man's going to experience it when we get to that portion next week, because we're gonna, we have to divide this up yet again. And so I just kind of want to talk a little bit more about people fear accepting Christ as Savior, Master, and King, and they fear it because they don't want to have to, re they feel as though they have to reject their community. Or they recognize the fact that the community is going to reject them. And that's also scary. So now this can seem harsh, but the truth can be harder to accept than a lie. Why? Because a lie conceals itself in safety, in comfort, and in protection. All things that we desire because pain, rejection, and ostracization just feel wrong. So why would rejection from community be a fear that the blind man's parents had? Why would it be so painful to face rejection or ostracization, to be kicked out of the synagogue? Why would that have such a heavy burden on them? A safety net. I mean, you have a community of friends who understand that you had a young one that was born with a disability of being able to see. And so you have a group of people around you that have accepted you and have included you in. Yeah. And you're able to talk with, you're able to share life with, so to say, you're able to break bread together. You're yeah. able to um, give and take, you know, if there's something you need, hey, yeah, we'll pick that up for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they know them intimate, intimately right. in, in a, a friendship of a way that, if I dare say this man, Jesus is the prophet, this man, Jesus is the one that healed my son. There's that fear of the unknown. Yeah. What will happen? Will my friends reject me? Will my community, you know, will they not share with me anymore? Who that feeling of isolation right. seem right. to say being isolated yeah. of how will I operate by myself without knowing someone, you know, that's that's um, hard. It's lonely. Well, there's a couple of passages of scripture that I just want to um, point out. And Mallory is going to start with the first one, and it's found in Psalm 119, and it's verse 52. And the reason I, I wanted to kind of look at some of these, and these aren't the only passages of scripture. These are um, just four passages of scripture to help give us comfort in those moments where we are afraid of being rejected by our community. And they point to the one who is our comfort. They point to the one who is there for us. The one who does give us safety, even if we are in the midst of pain, isolation, rejection, or ostracization. And so Mallory, go ahead and read Psalm 119.52. I remembered thy judgments of old, O Lord, and I've comforted myself. Wonderful. And then there's another one found in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, Aisha. I will praise you, Lord. I thought you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Wonderful. And then even Jesus reads a portion of Isaiah 61 when he starts his ministry. as a, And he says, after he completes this passage of scripture, I stand today in fulfillment of this promise. Blair, will you read that one? 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And then he, he said, and I, have, I am the fulfillment of this promise. And then the last one is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 6 and 7. Xavier? If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that, you, as, that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Yeah. God's desire is to comfort us. And yes, we may face these hard times, these rejections, these isolations, these moments of needing to turn from everything that we've ever known. I mean, some of the sin that we've gotten so embedded with, it becomes a part of who we are. And we even define ourselves by some of those things. Well, this is the person that I am and this is how I've always been. And so how can I change now? And God is calling us to reject that former way of life and move forward in him. And as we move forward in him, he's there to comfort us when it's painful and when it's a struggle. And when we fail, he's still there saying, it's okay, I'm here. Let's keep going forward. Because he doesn't look on the outward things that we do, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we order people around, or the way we make ourselves look good on social media. He looks at our heart. Are there any other things that to be brought up uh, from this passage of scripture that we've read today or any of the scriptures that we've just read? Well, to go with your being scared to um, no suffering and to be rejected and all that other stuff. I mean, when I did read 2 Corinthians, Paul has said is that when we suffer, we will receive comfort. And so in that, as Christians, we need to expect suffering instead of always thinking our lives are going to be good and happy because we have Jesus. And we need to realize the fact that because we're Christians, we're going to suffer. But in that suffering, we're going to have comfort because Christ is our, I mean, the Holy Spirit and God is our comforter. And so in those times of suffering, he's going to be there for us. Yeah. And also in Matthew, I was reading earlier this week, it was talking about the rich young ruler who mm -hmm. comes to Jesus and asks, how do I get into heaven? And so he says, follow the, all the commands, which I, which is given to you. And he's like, I've done that since I was a child. So what else do I need to do? And he says, give up everything you have and follow me. Yeah. And in that he went away very upset because he didn't want to give up his earthly possessions mm or anything like that. And then Jesus later goes on later to say, it's more impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Mm. But then he says, and we stop there usually. Yeah. But he says after that, but in God, all things are possible. Right. Meaning with God, he can allow a, a rich man can come to salvation and enter into the kingdom of heaven and remove and get rid of all of his earthly possessions. Because with God, all things are possible. Right. He's just talking about how that rich young ruler was so bent on being human in man, on man, and depending on man instead of depending on God. If he was depending on God, then it would have been completely possible. But yeah. since he was depending on man's words, 
and everything man has said and asking Jesus who he thinks is man, even though he's not only man, he's also 100% God, he went away sad because he was looking for an easy way in. Yeah. Instead of actually discovering the truth. Yeah. Absolutely. God, help me in my disbelief. May I accept your miraculous work and unashamedly proclaim your testimony. May you be on my mind and heart all day. May I discern whom I may learn and study under, not making a religious leader my God or my master. May my comfort come from you and not this world. Open my eyes to see that I am just a vapor in this world as I prepare for eternity with you. And may I worship you all the days of my life. Mallory, will you close us in prayer? Thank you, Jesus, for this day and for every single day and that everybody will be safe and everybody wears their masks and uh, use hand sanitizer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.